Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Semiconductors are part of the computer hardware magic that makes any device with an on switch work. The policies around semiconductor chip production continues to be a hot global topic due to parallel interest in supply chain management and national security. While U.S.-based companies are still in the lead in the design of chips, the manufacturing is mostly done overseas in Taiwan, South Korea, and China. The recent chip shortage has brought more attention to the geopolitical importance of the manufacturing process. From a supply chain perspective, more attention has come to how many things depend on a chip to allow it to function, from cars to cell phones. This has brought about a call for semiconductor supply chain resilience and a need for more security in the design process and manufacturing of semiconductor chips. There are many questions when it comes to the geopolitical challenges around semiconductor design, production, and trade. Should the U.S. government encourage semiconductor chip manufacturers to build more fabrication plants on American soil? Should that include government-funded incentives? Should the U.S. be offering migration incentives for high-tech chip engineers from Taiwan from both a national security and a supply chain perspective? On this episode of Explain to Shane, I'm joined by my AEI colleague, Claude Barfield, again to interview Chris Miller, a new Gene Kirkpatrick Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Chris resides in the Foreign and Defense Policy Department. He's also an assistant professor at Tufts University's Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and directs the Eurasia Program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute also known as FPRI. Chris recently published an FPRI report titled Labs Over Fabs, How the U.S. Should Invest in the Future of Semiconductors. He is also releasing a book on the geopolitical history of semiconductors this year. Chris's writing frequently appears in national news outlets and opinion columns, including Foreign Affairs and the New York Times. Chris joins the podcast today to discuss semiconductor industry national security and supply chain challenges and Congress's attempt to guide the U.S. chip production towards a more secure path for a future of innovation. Chris, welcome to Explain to Shane. You have written an excellent report on semiconductor technology that caught our attention, and I look forward to talking about it in a minute. But first, tell us about your upcoming book on geopolitical history of the computer chip. What is the book's underlying premise, and what inspired you to write it? Well, I came to focus on this topic from two different directions. Uh, one was trying to understand the history of the Cold War, since I'm a historian of Russia by training. And one of the puzzles that I'd always uh, wrestled with was why the Soviet Union was able to make uh, atomic weapons with relative ease and shoot the first rocket and the first guy into space, but struggled with computers. And by the end of the Cold War, had fallen far behind in military technology. And so that was a puzzle that I was trying to understand and had been uh, confused by for some time. Uh, and then secondly, looking at U.S.-China dynamics today, um, which over the past couple of years have focused uh, in particular on semiconductors, which is a piece of technology that I previously had thought almost nothing about. And as I came to look at both of those in more detail, I, I began to realize how crucial semiconductors are, not only to our daily lives, where they power all sorts of digital technologies that we use, but also in the production of military power and geopolitical influence uh, from the first invention of uh, chips amid the, the Cold War space race and arms race all the way up to uh, the present and U.S.-China composition today. That's really fascinating. Yeah. And I think we've all learned a lot about semiconductor chips. Everything with an on button has one. (laughs) (laughs) 
as you probably know, we this is our second time. Well, more for more for Shane, but the second time talking directly about industrial policy. We talked with Professor Carl Weinberger the last time at University of Stockholm. He went into some of the background. One of the things that I'm to get us started interested in, we can get to the question of uh, the fabs a little bit later, but one of the things I'm interested in is you make a, a strong case, I think, for uh, the United States, for the current policymakers to spend a lot more time in thinking about the advanced research in semiconductors rather than on the more near-term fabs. Um, what do you, and Congress is, is actually moving to a massive bill uh, related not just to semiconductors, but to innovation. What's your thinking about the way the Congress looks? We don't know the final version, obviously, yet, but the way the House and the Senate seem to be approaching R&D, and particularly the R side of R&D. Well, I guess when I look at our our semiconductor challenges that we face as a country, and as we think about how they're related not only to technological advances, but also to, to geopolitical issues, I think there are two issues at stake. One is that we are now, as a country, and really the entire world is now heavily reliant on a small number of producers, which uh, largely are arrayed along the coast of China and in, in Taiwan and in South Korea. And so that's one problem, our geographic reliance on, um, on, on these firms and their facilities right next to China. But there's a second problem, which is that in certain parts of the uh, semiconductor supply chain, which is, is an enormously complicated um, uh, uh, a set of companies which we can get into, in certain parts of those, the U.S. position has been falling behind uh, relative to um, rivals in other countries. And so there's a question that we should discuss about how do you deal with geographic um, concentration of the chip industry in places that are quite vulnerable to China. But there's a, a separate question, which is how do we make sure that the U.S. stays uh, ahead of rivals in this industry, and especially ahead of China, and, and retains its dominant position in the semiconductor industry, and that's uh, that's where research and development uh, are crucial. And the U.S. obviously has a, a set of universities that are second to none, um, but I think it's pretty clear that although university research is fantastic uh, and ought to be supported and is supported, uh, there's also more that can be done to help make sure that we're taking new ideas coming out of universities and providing them with a pathway towards commercialization. Um, and one of the challenges that uh, the industry has faced over the past uh, couple of decades that's changed a bit in recent years is that there's a lot more venture capital money going into software ideas and iPhone apps than there has been uh, in recent years going into uh, into hardware and, and semiconductor startups simply because they're, they're more expensive um, to fund. And so I think there's a lot more we can be doing uh, to think about how do we get new ideas out of universities into a pathway towards commercial viability. Uh, and I think there are some good ideas uh, coming out of, um, uh, of of Congress on this issue. But my concern always with uh, Congress when it starts thinking about industrial policy is, of course, every senator and every representative wants a new factory in their district or in their state. And so uh, we, we do see some of that um, some of that already happening in in the legislation. And I think probably an excessive focus on building more uh, semiconductor fabs onshore relative to the other question of how do we make sure the industry is staying ahead relative to rivals. And that's a question of research and a question of development and, and the pathway from new ideas to potentially commercializable products. 
you make the point that getting from the university to great science scientific research are the R part, but we need to think more about how we get the ideas into commercial uh, activity. The universities are making a strong case, and some of this is reflected in the legislation. I know this is something we hadn't really thought of before, but since you raised it, they're making a strong case that they should be the font of moving from research to development. As you know, they all these days, many, many of them have technology development uh, uh, bodies and adjunct areas. I think that makes sense. The other, the other thing that's mentioned is that we ought to put, put all this in something like a DARPA. Uh, but these are two very different pathways, I think, from research into commercial development. Yeah, no, that, that's, I think, a, a key question. I, I think if you look at universities, it's clear that universities are very good at developing ideas. And it's also clear that universities are very good at lobbying Congress for more funding for university research. Um, and both of those facts have shaped the debate. I think there are case studies of universities successfully developing technologies, but they're far fewer than one might expect. That's not really how universities are structured. That's not what the incentives are at universities. And most of the examples we have of people taking ideas out of university and commercializing them, the commercialization doesn't happen in the Department of Electrical Engineering. It happens uh, when a professor leaves and founds a startup or takes an idea and, and hands it off to a company. So I, th I think we should be a little bit skeptical of the ideas that universities are good at the D in R&D. They're certainly good at the R, but we need to think about the development as well. If you look at DARPA, which you know in some ways is one of the most successful organizations uh, in, in, in the history of American governance, it's, it's, it's funded and helped develop a, a whole range of ideas. Um, DARPA has been extraordinarily useful for the American military at at pushing the boundaries of science and engineering forward, at funding um, risky ideas that otherwise wouldn't have gotten private sector funding. But DARPA is also not a organization focused on commercialization at all. It's focused on finding and testing um, uh, ideas that might be relevant to the Defense Department. And that's a very important task. And I think we ought to uh, recognize DARPA's crucial role there. Um, but I think we shouldn't overestimate DARPA's ability to support commercialization either. That's not what it's structured to do. That's not what it's done historically. Um, and, and so that's why I think there, there is space to think about are there other institutions that we need to find or help create or help fund that can play this development and commercialization um, role? Because if we turn to DARPA, which is focused on defense products, or turn to universities, which are focused on producing papers and research, uh, we shouldn't expect them to be very good at things that they're not ultimately focused on doing. Chris, looking at your report, you talk a lot about embracing open source technologies, and we right now look at them as proprietary and something that is very specific to kind of the secret sauce to how semiconductors work. So with the innovation cycle, how do you embrace open source? How do you see that moving forward? Well, I, I think many people hear open source and think unsecure because it's, it's not closed. But in fact, uh, if something is open source, you have even more eyes on it looking for potential uh, errors. Um, and, and I think there's a strong argument that this actually makes open source instruction set architectures, which are sort of like the set of rules that govern how um, chips work, uh, actually more secure um, because you've got simply more people um, looking for potential errors. Um, so I, I think we should we should not um, we should not start by thinking closed is more secure. Um, I don't I don't think there's actually good evidence 
um, behind that. And the reason that open source uh, instruction set architectures are interesting is because uh, right now, uh, one of the challenges the chip industry faces is that it's becoming more and more expensive uh, to design chips for a number of reasons. As chips get more complicated, it's harder to design them. Um, as, as the number of transistors per chip um, grows, it gets harder to design them. Um, but also, there's an argument that at least for, for the less complex chips that we have, um, chips that are in Internet of Things devices, for example, um, it might end up being uh, cheaper and easier to use an open source architecture um, because you won't have uh, you won't have layers of of of, of other people demanding licensing fees and uh, and uh, putting proprietary software on top of it. Um, so that's where I think open source is an interesting um, interesting trend for the chip industry to embrace. Uh, it's not a coincidence that DARPA actually was a early funder of uh, Risk Five, which is the most prominent open source instruction set architecture. Uh, the idea behind funding that was to think about how can we make chip design cheaper and easier so we have more innovation because the cheaper and easier it is to design chips, the more people you'll have experimenting and the more innovation uh, we're likely to have. So it does require a mindset shift away from the idea that closed equals more secure. Um, but in this case, I think there's a strong argument to be made that open is both more secure and also uh, will foster more innovation. You also talk about making trip careers more competitive and how the challenges, you know, you go into software and, and there's just more money in it, you know, for the individual. And that there is always that challenge in software about open source. And, you know, do more people looking at your code mean that you you find the flaws faster? So that's it, it's an interesting parallel. Um, talk a little bit about the idea of making chip careers easier to get into is they tend to have a very long uh, education cycle. Yeah, that's right. To, to work in the chip industry, you in most cases or many cases, finish a PhD in electrical engineering or some sort of material science or physics. Um, so there's a long pathway into it. Uh, and over the past uh, at least decade or two, generally salaries have been higher in software rather than hardware, um, simply because we've had a lot more growth in, in the software space. And uh, on the one hand, it makes sense for an economy to allocate more employees to, uh, to sectors that are growing faster where there's more money to be made. But there's some risks there as well, which is that we don't have uh, the the number of trained engineers and, and trained material scientists that we need to um, to keep innovation going in the chip industry. And and in addition to that, the U.S. increasingly relies on importing um, uh, PhDs from abroad to to take up um, positions in the chip industry. And that's a good thing. We ought to embrace it. But it also uh, it also does add to challenges given restrictions on immigration that uh, exist. And so I think there's there's two things we ought to think about. One is can we provide better pathways um, into into the chip industry that will take uh, students who are interested in in the subfields that uh, that lead into uh, chip design or chip um, chip manufacturing or the, the machine tools that make chips and provide them with a pathway where they can see how they can finish a PhD and then uh, get careers in the industry, but also think about how do we uh, simplify our immigration rules so that we are able to hire the uh, workers that we need from anywhere in the world. That's something that has been built into Silicon Valley since its earliest days. Um, the, the company that in many ways founded Silicon Valley, Fairchild Semiconductor, of its founders, uh, two out of eight were uh, born outside the United States. And, and that ratio has, uh, if anything, only increased throughout Silicon Valley's history. So we've got to be very comfortable with bringing, uh, bringing talented foreigners here, but we also need to make sure that um, there are clear pathways for um, anyone starting a PhD program in the US to see how they could end up with a job in the chip industry at the end. Just a quick intervention on that. I would guess, though, that 
given the extraordinary interest today and the fact that the, if you were if you were an undergraduate uh, today, you're, you're very much aware that the, the U.S. government is very is is really concerned about the semiconductors. That there will be a pull toward. I don't. I'm not saying this will solve the problem, but they will pull in that direction. I think we may have to worry more about the sort of other more obscure scientific disciplines in the next couple of years, I mean, in the next decade, that I'm just thinking. But I just throw that as an example because you just got a lot of a lot of attention on this, and it's got to be filtering it down. So I'll have to say in passing that I remember the head. He didn't say he didn't go into a lot of detail. I don't think he wanted to be counted as criticizing the United States, but he, the head of the Taiwan Semiconductor uh, Company, made the point that they had to send U.S. engineers to Taiwan for almost a year to train them on the most advanced chip making. It's a really interesting issue, and I think it's, it's even more complicated by the fact that if, if you look at how international the not only the supply chains are, but often individual companies in the chip industry. Um, are you you can't think about national labor markets because it, as you say, there are right. uh, a, a number of companies that you know have critical parts of their operation in multiple different countries, and and so it's you you need to have flexibility for them to move employees around and for employees to get trained and uh, in in different parts of the supply chain in different parts of the world. Um, that, that's absolutely right. So, Chris, let's talk about um, some of the challenges that we see on the national security implications. So you work on our foreign and defense policy team here at AI, and it's, it seems like it's an, always a balance we have in this conversation, which is the economic issues versus national defense and national security. And right now, the national security uh, arguments really were the pointy end of the sphere when they were discussing Yusika almost two years ago is why we needed to pull this back to the United States. And then the supply chain you know, disruption during COVID really showed that, it, you know, the vast importance of having things more close to home because, you know, there's just so much disruption cars, you know, I've, I've been out here in Colorado for about a week. And I think everybody's told me a supply chain management you know, challenge was somehow has a chip involved. So, um, but, but when we go back to national security, do you see that as part of the reason why we should be bringing we onshoring more of the uh, chip manufacturing actually here in the United States versus just the design? Yeah, you know, I think there are, are two related but distinct national security issues, and I'd also love to dive into the supply chain question um, too. But on the national security side, there's two issues. One is that, as I mentioned at the outset, a big chunk of chip manufacturing today, including some really irreplaceable capacity for manufacturing high-end, the most advanced processor chips that power smartphones or data centers, takes place right off the coast of China, and in particular, on a small island that China considers a renegade province, uh, in other words, Taiwan. And so there's there's a huge risk that if there is a crisis in Taiwan, if China invades or attacks or blockades, that will not only be a military challenge, but will also have huge economic repercussions uh, in a way that in, in a way that I, I think most Americans would be shocked to realize that if if Taiwan were to not be able to produce semiconductors next year, it would be almost impossible anywhere in the world to buy a smartphone um, next year. I mean, the ramifications would just be extraordinary. So that's one national security risk. But that's that's a national security risk about can we be confident that we'll have access to uh, the quantity of supply we need from Taiwan and South Korea in particular. There's a second national security question, which is 
can the U.S. military be confident that it's getting access to uh, chips that don't have um, that are designed exactly the way they're supposed to be designed? We don't want the military to be acquiring chips that have uh, that have been modified in some sort of way that um, opens up back doors. And it's not only the military; it's the entire U.S. government. And really, at this point, because chips are so important, it's critical infrastructure too, like telecoms networks. We also want to make sure that we're confident. Uh, in their design and manufacturing. Uh, and so I think that's a question as well that is related to geography. There are certain geographies where we're more comfortable with, others less comfortable with. Certainly chips produced in China we're a lot less comfortable with. And so there are ways to to address that issue. One is to have less manufacturing of chips in China or other geographies where we're less confident in the security. A second is there are some new ideas, including some funded by DARPA, about how to make chips more easily verifiable to ensure that the chip you receive is the chip you were expecting to receive with nothing uh, changed in the process. Um, and, and so the solution to both of these national security problems is is different. Um, one is making sure we've got Taiwan properly defended uh, to make sure that the Chinese don't try to uh, attack or blockade. A second is to think about how do our defense and critical infrastructure chip supply chains look and do we have confidence that all of the factories, the fabs that are producing these chips um, have the security standards we want to make sure no one is manipulating chips before they're uh, sent to us and, and put in systems. And those are the two key things. For both of those facets of national security, I think there is clearly a problem, clearly a challenge posed by the expansion of chip fabrication in China, which is growing quite rapidly from a small base, but uh, growing uh, really at an extraordinary clip. And second, there is a challenge, I think, uh, posed by the fact that we consume so many chips from Taiwan, which in, on the one hand is a U.S. partner. On the other hand, there are, I think, pretty widespread concerns in the U.S. government that our confidence in, in security in Taiwanese-run fabs is less than our confidence in security, for example, in a, a fab based in the U.S. I take it then that you that you were would be broadly supportive without getting to, you know, looking at the details of the legislation of the money that, that is being uh, allocated for subsidization of fans in the United States. That's one of the issues you raised. The second, uh, you might tease out more about the Defense Department's own needs. Can that be done from, I'm inferring from what you said, you think it can be done by intervention in particular plants as opposed to the Defense Department having a dedicated fab that really is for its needs. But the, but the larger question is, the, going back to the first, that the idea that the United States should, the U.S. government should subsidize, certainly TSMC coming here, but also uh, Samsung and, and other non-U.S. companies, as well as, we come back to this, uh, U.S. companies, Intel, uh, is something that you're not uncomfortable with. Well, I think both those issues are related um, because if you want to get the most advanced logic chips, there are, which the Pentagon wants, there are only two companies in the world that can produce them, TSMC and Samsung. Right. Intel right now is behind. Now, it might catch up in the future. I hope it does. Um, but right now, it's behind. So Intel has its most advanced production onshore in the US. TSMC and Samsung both have some production in the U.S., but it's not their most advanced production. Both of them are in the process of building larger facilities in the U.S., but even still, it won't be their most advanced production. So uh, under any scenario right now, uh, the most advanced TSMC and Samsung production will stay in Taiwan 
and in South Korea, respectively. So the only scenario that's foreseeable right now in the near term for the U.S. to have advanced logic chip production onshore is if Intel manages to catch up, which is it's trying to do. Um, it's very difficult to do. I think, uh, to be honest, most people in the chip industry are not betting that it will succeed. Um, but in my judgment, it's possible that they do catch up in a couple of years. Um, so what does that mean for the U.S.? It means if you want U.S.-based uh, advanced logic chip mating at the most advanced cutting edge, you're not going to get it unless Intel manages to catch up in a couple of years, which is something you can't be sure about. But you could, you could, and I suspect that the U.S. government has the the power to do this, whether it's wise or not in terms of inter- allied relations. But you could, you could just demand that TSMC and Samsung put a plants here that are their most advanced. That's right. I think the, I, I think to actually do that. Would require transferring a, a huge share of TSMC's employees to the U.S. because they're they're bringing a new plant online every year or so. They they roll out a new process technology once a year on average, right. which is the speed that Moore's law dictates. Right. Um, and and so what you by the time you start building a plant and it gets online, there's already a new process introduced in Taiwan, or in some cases, two new processes introduced in Taiwan. So you need right. them to move their most advanced technology from Taiwan uh, to the U.S., I think is the realistic way to look at it. You know, it's not inconceivable that that could happen, but that would require a revolution in U.S.-Taiwan relations and the transformation of TSMC as a company, because I think it's only conceivable that that could happen if TSMC basically uprooted itself and uh, moved its entire R&D team to California or to Texas. Um, so that, that would be a, a very, very big and complicated and expensive demand, um, something far beyond what the U.S. is considering right now. But considering the geopolitical situation we're in, do you think it's even something that's being discussed? I don't think it's being discussed. Um, whether it ought to be discussed, I think, is a different question. Um, uh, in the short term, I think our only answer is to make sure we're doing our utmost to defend Taiwan in terms of giving them the equipment they need to credibly defend themselves and in terms of making clear to the Chinese that we won't accept any sort of move on Taiwan. Um, but I do think over a five and 10 year time horizon, we do need to think pretty seriously about uh, if Intel doesn't look like it's catching up, what's our what's our medium-term strategy? Because over the medium term, these types of drastic moves become more plausible. In the one, two, three-year time horizon, the only hope, uh, even in the five-year time horizon, the only hope is to make sure that TSMC remains out of Chinese hands and open uh, to, to US companies and to the US Defense Department. Yeah, it seems like a really tough sequencing situation because for you know intel to get up and moving here you know all, all the funding you're you're kind of building trying to future proof which is really not possible in technology so you know do you how do you get intel to a situation where they eventually are a you know do they are they ever taiwan i mean that they have the leading edge well i think it's 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 hard for anyone outside of Intel to get Intel to that situation. They, they were in that position just a couple of years ago. So there's no reason that they couldn't get it back. But there's no amount of government money, for example, that's going to get Intel there. Um, Intel is actually enormously profitable today, um, despite that it's it's fallen behind technologically. Right. So a billion dollars or $10 billion isn't going to change the dynamics. They just need to figure out how to 
make their make their chips work better. And, and the engineering challenges are, of course, extraordinary. We're talking about manipulating uh, you know handfuls of atoms at a scale of a couple nanometers. Transistors now are smaller than the size of a coronavirus, and, and Intel and TSMC and Samsung produce trillions and trillions and trillions of these transistors a year. So it, uh, it's it's understandable why they're having difficulty uh, doing it. But it's not a question of, of finances nor is it the question of anything that Congress or the White House or anyone in government can help with. It really is, we're just betting on Intel's engineers to figure it out. I mean, we, yesterday, uh, Apple had their announcement, a lot of hardware announcements, and they have announced, besides the M1 chip, they have the M1 Pro and the M1 Max coming out. And this is part of a uh, cycle we've seen for the last couple of years, where the, uh, companies like Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon have really brought a lot of engineering in-house because they feel like they are they need the cycle of the design to move much faster than the generic industry. So what, what do you think about that trend? Are we going to see more of that? And will that pull more innovative uh, thought process onto the U.S. shores? Yeah, it's definitely a, a, a trend outside of Apple. Amazon is designing uh, and already producing uh, its own chips. Google uh, also designs uh, designs its own chips. Um, or, I'm sorry, Amazon doesn't produce. It designs its own chips and then produced by TSMC. So yeah, certainly we're going to see more of that. Almost all of the big tech firms are either doing or considering this type of thing. Generally speaking, I would say when big tech firms today are moving chip design in-house, uh, they're not uh, they're not reducing their use of foreign design services. They're reducing their use of uh, chip design services from other U.S. firms. One of the big trends right now is to have chips designed um, for the specific processes you're running on your data center in-house. So in the past, you might have used a lot of chips from AMD or Intel to US firms. And now you still use some of their chips, but you combine them with some chips that you, Amazon or Google have designed in-house. So it's it's less of a, a foreign versus US company shift than it is a, uh, do you have in-house design versus use designs from uh, other Silicon Valley chip makers? So what do you recommend for Congress and the federal agencies for their next steps to make sure that the U.S. stays competitive? I know we have some legislation up right now, but do you think we're on the right path? Are we looking at the right solution sets? Well, I think it's a good thing, first off, that Congress is focused on the issue. And it's a good thing that they're focused on the issue with funds available. My sense of the legislation that is uh, working its way uh, through Congress right now is that it strikes an okay balance between thinking about R&D and uh, closing the cost gap between what it takes to open a facility in the U.S. versus what it takes to open a facility abroad. There's always a fair amount of sausage factory uh, and any sort of legislation that moves through Congress. And we've, we've seen uh, no small amount of that. Uh, it's not a surprise, for example, that the senators and representatives that are most gung-ho about the legislation are also those that uh, are looking to have additional facilities built in their districts. And I, I do worry a little bit um, that the desire to see more fabs built is taking precedent over strategic thinking about which types of fabs do we actually need built, because it matters hugely whether you're building a memory or a logic fab or whether you're building which type of logic uh, process you're looking at. And uh, some of these are a lot more valuable in strategic terms than others. And so I think to the extent that we can remove this decision-making from the hands of legislators who are interested in uh, pork barrel politics for their own districts and put it in the hands of people who are thinking strategically about where are their actual national security challenges and where there are not national security challenges, uh, the better off we'll be. I think that, you know, just to go back, I mean, there, there are two points. 
come to mind was one Intel going to Ohio. I've I've read the the defenses of that, but and I'm not convinced. But two, there are going to be pressures on Intel. Intel could probably make a lot more money in the medium up to the near medium term if it goes for not the not the most advanced ships, but to ally as you're finding in Europe, where there's a big debate with the automobile industry, which is really crying for you know more chip production. So there are cross currents, you know, that uh, that will fit here beyond just the normal fact that the every congressman wants one of these fabs in his dist- his or her district. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And and Intel is an interesting example. On, on the one hand, it's asking for financial support from the U.S. to build more fabs in the U.S. Uh, and it's doing the same thing in Europe. Um, but also as part of its turnaround strategy, Intel has uh, cut a deal with TSMC in Taiwan, whereby for at least the next couple of years, TSMC is going to produce the most advanced chips that Intel yeah, designs, right. um, which actually right. makes the U.S. even more reliant on Taiwan for our most advanced chips, at least for the next couple of years. I'd like to go back. You've talked in passing about China and what China is doing with semiconductors. Could you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, my impression is that they spent a lot of money and so far have not gotten nearly as far as they would like. Is that what's your what's your impression there? Yeah, that's that's definitely right. The, the Chinese government has, has spent a ton of money at the national level, also provincial government um, subsidies. Much of this money ends up being wasted or going into fabs that right. are not profitable. Um, but what has happened uh, is that China's already built out and is going to build out a ton more uh, fab capacity for not very advanced logic chips. So the types of chips that would go in a car, for example. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that is a challenge for a number of reasons. These, these aren't the most cutting edge chips, but um, because China's fabs are government subsidized and are able to charge lower prices as a result of these government subsidies, there's a risk that they begin to um, take market share from uh, firms in Taiwan and South Korea and the US and Europe. Right. Uh, and thereby challenge profitability of firms outside of China. Um, and so that's, that's the, I think, the key risk. It's less the cutting edge than it's the, is China going to so distort the market uh, that non-Chinese right. shipmakers will face pressure as a result, be less able to invest, uh, and, and therefore slow their technological progress. Um, so I think we need to focus a lot on what tools do we have to stop that from happening um, or to prevent subsidized ships from reaching global markets. Um, because this is a real challenge for for chip makers. Even if it's not challenging the cutting edge, it matters a lot if um, if if less advanced ships are become more difficult for them to sell. Well, Chris, you've given us a lot to think about, and I hope you continue to write on this. I look forward to reading your book. Knowing the history of how all of this came about certainly makes it easier to understand the path that we should go, go moving forward. And I highly recommend people read your, your report because it's just fascinating to put all the pieces together about how we need more education as well as more money. We get the point that everybody wants more money, um, but the, the to change the dynamic of what we're doing here in the U.S. But uh, I really appreciate you being a guest today on Explain to Shane. Great. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.